All right, well, uh, so we're beginning this evening our series on the book of Revelation. I've been really excited about this. I've um, been working hard on it. Uh, just kind of so you know, uh, we're going to be doing this both as, a, uh, as the podcast that we've been doing, but I also decided to do um, a YouTube live because I'm relying so much on the screen and you can't see a screen in a podcast, obviously. And so um, for those that listen to this podcast, if you want to see the slides, you can go to our YouTube page and watch it there. And um, yeah, um, this, tonight we're going, to really, we're going to be looking at chapter one of the book of Revelation. But really this is going to be kind of an overview, or not overview, but sort of an introduction to the book as well. And, and sort of how I plan to go about the study. Um, what I want to keep in mind as we go into this study. Um, and uh, so that's what we'll be focusing on. Um, I've got this book right here. I'll show it to you. You don't have to buy it to be a part of this class. But I'm going to be relying on it a lot. Um, and if you're interested in studying more and where the perspective that I'm going to be taking on this and you're interested in studying more, this is pretty accessible. It's not that big. Um, it's a pretty easy read. Um, but it's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Uncivil worship and witness and following the Lamb into the new creation. He jokes because he couldn't pick one subtitle, so he picked two subtitles. It's kind of funny, but anyway, that's the book that I'm going to be kind of relying on. I'll be looking at other books as well that you can have access to in our library if you're interested, um, but that's the one that I'll really be using and the perspective that I'll be coming out of on the book. <clears throat> so the first thing, and this is just kind of a fun note, um, notice it's Revelation, not Revelations. Sometimes people, when they say it, they say the book of Revelations as if there's more than one. There's actually only one. There's one revelation in the book of Revelation. And so um, I just like, I, obviously you'll be annoying if you go, out, go around correcting people on that. So try not to do that. But um, anyway, just kind of a note. And I think it's an important note that the book is one revelation. There's not multiple revelations happening in the book. Um, so I want to start by talking about literary genres of the Bible. And part of what we're going to do in this introduction today can really apply to a lot of scripture reading and how we, pro- how we approach the Bible. But um, I think it's especially important for a book like Revelation that has such um, vivid imagery in it. And so I want us to, to, to go through this um, and just kind of highlight some things. There are uh, really about eight genres that we find in scripture, and they might be called something different at other times. Some of these can be put in subcategories, but these are kind of generally the, the genres of the Bible. When I say genre, like modern day, um, larger, larger genres that we have are like nonfiction and fiction. But even within that, you might have westerns or sci-fi and things like that. And so that's really what, what I mean by genres. And then there's these particular genres of the Bible. Um, narrative, which is like stories that are happening. Wisdom. Law, history, poetry, apocalyptic, epistle, that is letters, um, and prophecy. And so those are the general sorts of literary genres that you can find in Scripture. Um, but, I, but I just want us to highlight those. I want us to think about those for a second. Have those in your mind um, as we go into Scripture. Anytime we go into Scripture, and I think especially in the book of Revelation, um, the question of genre, what are we reading? What is the genre of literature that we are reading as we approach this book. It can be really helpful as we try to understand it, interpret it, and, and know what to do with it. Um, there, part of what, one of the things that Gorman says is that the question of genre is, a, is a absolutely critical 
for proper interpretation of any writing, but especially for a work like Revelation. And so these are the different genres that we find in Scripture. Keep that in mind, and then we're going to we're going to start uh, this morning, this evening, by reading the first um, first few first few verses of Revelation. I'm going to read it off the screen. You have it on your paper there. Revelation one. We'll do verse one through eleven. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who share with you the persecution and the kingdom of endurance that in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. All right, we're going to pause there, and we'll come back to the rest of the text in a little bit. We're going to read the, the rest. All right, so uh, my first question from you, for you is to go back to that list. Based on what we just read, and maybe what you know or think or, or have believed about um, Revelation before, which one of these genres is Revelation? And I've got them listed on your handout as well, if you want to get a closer look. You've got narrative, wisdom, law, history, poetry, apocalyptic, epistle, and prophecy. Which genre is revelation? Is it only one? Good question. Narrative. Narrative, okay. What you just read is more narrative. Okay. Prophecy. Prophecy, okay. History of prophecy. Okay, history. There's history in there. Okay. Letters. It's a letter. Yeah. So yeah. So you're 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 picking up on it there, David, um, and and all of you. That is not one genre. It's it's several of them. Um, and, and honestly, it could be. And I think you know you you're highlighting history. There's a historical aspect to it. Really, I think the historical aspect of it we could say is a part of all. Um, all books of scripture. There's historical things going on and when all of them are written, they're all written to a particular in a particular time period. And so there's a historical element to all of them. Um, I think we'd go so far as to even say there's a wisdom element to all of scripture. We we derive our wisdom from it. But these are these are genres and so there there's a particular thing that, that the authors um, that the Spirit was using through the authors to to write to. And and several of you said a few of those. A prophecy. Um, uh, letters, right? It is a letter. Um, 
Let's go back to uh, this one. Um, oh, sorry, before I do that. It was a trick question. Caught that trick question. Revelation is not one genre. It's at least three. Um, and again, it has elements of others. It has elements of poetry. Um, it has elements of history. Um, but there are, there are really three genres that it really falls into from the, the list on Scripture. And these will be the ones that we focus on. Um, and that is epistle. It is a letter. It is written to seven churches. It, that, is the intention, that was the original audience. It is a prophecy. And it is apocalypse. Okay? Apocalyptic literature. It is prophetic literature. And it is a letter. And so we're going um, to look at those first six verses, I believe. Um, and we're going to go through reverse order because what we're going to find is that um, there it's a part of all of them. So let's let's talk first about epistle or letter. Now, when we say epistle or letter, we're, you might think of um, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, um, Hebrews, First uh, John. You know, all of a majority of the New Testament are letters. Okay, and so the the genre that um, we'll start with that we'll focus on is. The, is uh, Revelation as a letter. Now, we, what we find, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. That, that line, grace to you and peace, grace and peace to you. Have you heard that before in the New Testament? That is a very, very common um, greeting. Paul in Galatians as Paul, an apostle, he identifies himself to the churches in Galatia, the person, the people that he's writing to, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, Paul similarly, Paul an apostle to the saints in Ephesus. He's identifying himself, he's identifying who he's writing to, and then he's giving this greeting. Grace to you and peace. First Peter, even, Peter an apostle to the exiles in Pontus, Galatia, and Cappadocia. May grace and peace be yours. You get the idea. It's a very common way to greet um, people in a letter. Revelation I would even go so far as to say, before we look at any of the other genres, we got to understand it as a letter. It is a letter written to particular people, um, and that is an important aspect of this. Um, and this, and so these are the sort of the things that you keep in mind as you're reading a letter. Um, Revelations and epistle. What does that mean? How do we read it? How do we interpret it? Um, a question. The questions we need to ask is: It is a letter written by a particular person. Who is that person? Who is John in this case? Um, I don't know how many of you, well, this will burst bubbles for or whatever, um, but it is almost certainly not John who wrote the gospel. Um, and it probably isn't even John who wrote the epistles, the first, second, third John. Most um, scholars don't think it's either of those Johns. It's probably a different John. If he, was, um, if he was John the apostle, he probably would have identified himself that way. He would have said, I'm John the apostle. That would have been a, that would have been a way, that, just like Paul and did and, and um, Peter did in the, their letters. Um, he, would have, he would have identified himself that way. And so to be able to write um, personal notes, we, this is an important note, he writes very personal notes. We're going to get into those next week, chapters 2 and chapters 3. Um, the next two weeks, we're, we'll be getting into very personal notes. He most likely knew them. He was a teacher of the church there. He was a leader of the church in Western Asia to these churches that he's writing to. Um, so what are some other things we know about him? He was exiled on an island for his public testimony. Some people read it, and what they hear him saying is that, um, I don't think anybody in here does, but I know that it's been a question of, does he go to Patmos for, in order to witness there, to bear witness, or does he go to Patmos because of? Um, well, the Greek is, uh, it, in, in our English, it sounds like it could be either. I am there, I, I, am, on, I am on the island because of my witness. 
Um, and, and it kind of sounds like it could be either, but the, the Greek is a little more clear. He is there because of, not in order to, but because of. So he is there in exile. He has been put there because of his witness. Because he was a faithful witness, he um, was put there. And so he was in exile on the island for his public testimony. Um, besides all that, John's identity, exactly who he is, isn't all that clear, except for what we see in the book itself. Um, what is clear, Eugene Peterson says, is that John the Revelator is a witness and a prophet. He is a theologian. He is a poet. He is a pastor. He is God intoxicated. He is God possessed. He is God articulate. That is who John is. Um, okay, second question. A letter written to a particular people. Who are the people? Who are these churches? Um, we'll look at this question in more detail in the next couple of weeks, um, so I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at um, these. The, the cities that are listed are, are grouped together. They're, they make this one big circle, actually, on the map. It's, it's modern-day Turkey is where it is. Um, it's called Asia Minor. It's, it's Western Asia, so it's like the very beginning of Asia um, and, and um, going, uh, going east um, from there is Asia. So modern-day Turkey is where these are located, um, and we'll get into those um, but what is important is, is that these people were experiencing persecution. They were a part of the Roman Empire. Um, and at the time period, the Roman Empire was very hostile to uh, Christians. Um, the consensus, and this gets into this, the, last question, or the last question that we need to ask is when. When was it written? Um, a letter that was written at a particular time. This is important. Um, the consistent, consensus among scholars is that the book of Revelation was written in the 90s. Um, so 1990s, but 90s, AD 90, um, is when it was written. Now, during that time, Emperor Domitian was the emperor of Rome, um, and he was particularly hostile. He was one of the two or three um, Roman empires, emperors who didn't just ignore Christians, but actively sought ways to persecute them and to keep them. Um, he was the emperor who really revived um, emperor worship. If you were during, if you were at any of our uh, services, whenever I was preaching on Revelation, I talked about this a little bit. Emperor worship was this idea that the emperor was a god on earth and deserved to be worshipped as if he was a god. Domitian was the one who revived that religion. He he brought about a revival in that religion. So you can kind of imagine why persecution intensifies under his rule. He held to the belief. That he should be worshipped as a god and that anyone who did not follow the Roman civil religion or worship, the worship of the empire and emperor, they were subject to persecution. That's context. It's really important. And that's what it means to be a letter. Um, and, and, and all of this to say that just like any other letter in the New Testament, when we read Revelation, we must understand that there was an original audience, there was an original author, and there was a time period that it was written. That means it wasn't written to us originally wasn't written to someone in the 20th century originally. But that doesn't mean that we don't derive important things out of it, just like Romans. Romans wasn't written to us originally, but we still derive really important theological concepts out of that book, right? And so, um, and this is just kind of point this back to this, po this poster over here that I like to point you to. The books of the Bible were not written to inform us. They were written to transform us, Okay. So keep that in mind as we get into this book. All right. Second, Revelation is a prophecy. Um, again, it's identified. It's not, not we're reading it and we're saying it's a prophecy. It's identified as that. 
Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it. So it is a letter. It is a prophecy. Um, So what do we need to know about prophecy? Um, It is prophetic, not predictive. Okay? It would be called predictive if it was a prediction. Uh, Prophets were not fortune tellers. They were prophets. That means their goal wasn't just to tell you what the future was for the sake of knowing the future. Their goal was to tell you what was going to happen if you kept on living the way that you were living. Think of Isaiah and the prophets of the Old Testament. It was prophetic in that they were saying, hey, if you keep living this way, if you keep going in that direction, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be the result. It's not predicting anything. It's saying you're on that journey. You're on that path. You're going to get there. If you drive to Atlanta, I'm not really predicting that you're getting to Atlanta. I'm saying you're on the road to Atlanta, right? And so it's this idea that it's not a prediction. It's saying if you keep going in the way that you're going, this is going to be the result. Um, Gorman, again, he says, prophecy in the biblical tradition is not exclusively and not even primarily about making pronouncements or predictions concerning the future. Rather, prophecy is speaking words of comfort and or challenge on behalf of God. Comfort and challenge on behalf of God and and through God-inspired words to the people of God in their concrete historical situation. All right, that's the historical element that we've got to keep in mind. They were it was written to a particular people, right? And so that's what we have to keep in mind when we read prophecy. Visions were often the source of prophetic messages in the Old Testament, and symbols were used throughout. Prophetic words always include judgment, either on Israel or their enemies, or salvation. Um, Sometimes both. All prophetic words serve as a warning for someone to change their ways and that God would eventually, um, if not immediately, restore creation. And so it is prophetic, not predictive. It is a warning of what will happen if you continue in the way opposed to God. And it is a call or a challenge to change um, your ways or to remain faithful and to inspire hope. That is what prophecy is. All right, last one, apocalypse. All right, apocalypse. A scary word, all right? Um, John, once again, we don't identify it as apocalyptic literature by reading it. John identifies it as such. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's a fun fact. Um, that, that word, revelation. Oh, I guess I don't have that yet. Well, we're going to watch a video, actually. That's right. We're going to watch a video to, to help us with, um, with understanding that word. Revelation, which is the title of the book. Um, is also the word for apocalypse. That is where we get that same word. Those words mean the same thing. Apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. Um, let's watch this video. They'll, they'll explain it a little bit better than I will. If I can find my mouse. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood. Mountains crumble. New locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like a revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to 
show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example, take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh right, he's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope, or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea, trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. What is going on? Yeah, apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible. Like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Not in the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary, transported to God's throne room, where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right. It's a design pattern, showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah. Now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment. And it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the ten plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world 
that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter 1, as God allows the world and humans to sink back to darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. So too in the Revelation. The death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world... It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world, where heaven and earth are reunited, and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay. This is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. All right. All right, so I want to just kind of recap. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood. Moon. All right, so I just want to recap a few things. Um, that word apocalypse that is um, pretty common in our culture, um, and re- again, refer- often we assume it refers to the end of the world, um, is the same word that we have in English for revelation. Those words are the same. Um, this is the Greek, which is what John would have been writing in, the, the text that we're looking at, and then this is the transliteration, where these are the Greek letters, and this is the English version of that. It's apocalypse. Um, and it means revelation, which means unveiling when you're revealing something. I like the, the idea of a curtain being pulled back for you to be able to see what's actually going on. Um, I did puppets as a, as a kid uh, or as a, as a teenager. I, we did puppet shows and all in ministry. And so it's almost like you've got puppets up there. And the idea is that you're giving them life and you're, you're controlling them and manipulating them. And, and maybe there's some young kids who even see it as reality. It's as, almost as if those curtains that are covering up the puppeteers are pulled back and you see what's actually going on back behind it. Um, so that's what apocalypse means, and that's what revelation means. It's an unveiling of what is actually happening in the world. Um, and that's an important part of that, of, what, of studying the book. And so what do we need to know about reading an apocalypse? And again, this is re- recapping what was said in the video. So pulling back of the curtain, revealing what is really going on in the world. Um, It is meant to challenge and comfort God's people, very similarly to prophetic literature. There's a a connection there. Um, Similar to prophecy, the goal is to challenge and comfort God's people. And then three, um, it is poetic, it's imaginative, and symbols. This is a really important part of that video that we've got to keep in mind as we go into this series, this very long series on this book, is that... Um, symbols in the book of Revelation or any apocalypse in scripture are based on biblical design patterns. They're not always obvious. Um, And so here's what that means. As we move through Revelation, there will be times where we will try and say, here's a symbol in the book of Revelation. Here's most likely what it means. Sometimes I've I've heard um, one one teacher who, who was teaching on Revelation, he'd give himself a score. He'd say, here's what I think it means based on this, this, and this. And I, I give myself a four out of that, four out of five, um, rating on whether or not that's really what, what was intended by that. Because sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's hard. Um, lots of people have made predictions and made mistakes 
on that. And so we've got to be careful to make sure that we're um, being transparent. Sometimes the symbols are very obvious, and sometimes they're not that obvious. Um, we'll, get, we'll get a little bit of an example of that in chapter, uh, chapter 1 here in just a little bit. So just as a reminder, it is a letter first, it is a prophecy, and it is apocalypse, apocalyptic. Um, and again, there's also some poetry in there. There's some historical elements as well. But these are the general genres. Um, with that in mind, we will get into the next part of this. And I will again read it. It's also on your handout there. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one that was like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white, as, were white as white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like, a sun shine, was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead and see. And see. I am alive forever and ever, and I have, see, I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Um, I want us just to kind of walk through again. We're going to, we're getting a little bit of taste of some symbolism in this first in the rest of this first chapter. Um, I want us to make notes. So first, we'll start with the, the lampstands. We're told in this text what the lampstands are. So he says, "I saw seven golden lampstands," and then later it's explained the the, the one like the Son of Man explains the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we know that the seven. Seven lampstands represent the seven churches. We're given the symbol. That, remember, reminder, in apocalyptic literature, the symbols are very often usually pulled from other biblical literature, um, other biblical text. And so we go to Zechariah 4. Listen to this. And the angel, who, this is more apocalyptic literature in the book of Zechariah, which isn't a, a prophet, but this is a, um, prophetic, or this apocalyptic literature. And the angel who talked with me came again and walked me like a man that was wakened out of his sleep. And the angel said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it. All right, we come down uh, and there are two olive trees by it and one right at the bowl and one on its left. Again, we're not looking at Zechariah. I just want you to see the design pattern that we're seeing in Revelation where it's coming from imagery from other scripture. Um, I said to the angel who, who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He's asking about the lampstands. What are the lampstands? What do they mean? Um, and he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, which is the king at that point in time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's not a perfect definition given to him like we get in Revelation. The seven churches represent the seven lampstands. Um, but these images, which include the um, lampstand of gold with seven lamps on it, are a part of this message to the king. Not by might, not by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That is where this image that, that John is getting, that's the design pattern coming out of scripture that, that he, he, is, he is receiving from, from Christ. Um, with that in mind, just kind of a question just to, for me to get a break and for you to get a chance to speak. What is the significance of churches, of the seven churches being symbolized as lampstands? What do you think is significant about that? Especially in light of this, that this, this quote here from Zechariah. What is significant about them being lampstands? Light, yeah, lighting the way. I mean, that is a, that is a clear um, symbol, right? Lighting the way, a, a path forward, moving forward, um, especially in this idea of revelation, something being revealed. Um, and, and then, on top of that, if we go back to this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Right? I mean that is. I mean that's a that's a pretty good summary of the whole book of Revelation if you read all of it. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And I'm getting ahead of in the book of Revelation if I speak too much on that. Um, let's look at some more symbols that we get in this first chapter. Um, here's an explanation of what he sees. John's really good at describing what he sees. Right? I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, the golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white. As white as wool, whiter, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. All right, there is, there is another symbol. Did Jesus have white hair? Probably not. He was only 30, right? Whenever he left, right? Jesus probably didn't have white hair. His head probably wasn't white either. Um, his eyes probably were not like fire, flame, right? This is symbolism. Right? This means something. There are symbols. It is symbols that are based on biblical design, a biblical design pattern. All right? That is something we're going to be reminded of over and over and over again in this series, that the symbols that, they are, that, that John is seeing come out of, the, out, of, out of Scripture. It's a continuation of what Scripture has been telling us all along. Um, let's look at this. I saw one like the Son of Man. Let's go to Daniel 7, another Old Testament book. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. And I got the highlight here. I saw one like the Son of Man. Okay, here we go. Daniel 7, um, verse 13. One like a Son of Man. All right? One like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. If you read the Gospels, you know Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Um, The human one, some translations will say. Um, One like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. I saw one like a Son of Man. All right, now here's another description. Um, the description of what, Re- of what John sees in Revelation. His head and his hair were white, white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. Let's look at um, Daniel 7 again. Before we get to the Son of Man, as I looked, thrones were placed, and there was one, an ancient of days, took his seat, his raiment uh, uh, robe was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Okay, so you've got the image of white, white as snow, specifically, pure wool. Those are the exact same descriptions that we have over here. His throne, which we'll get to the throne in the next, next uh, couple chapters, was like fiery flames, almost like, the, like Jesus' eyes are over here. Now here's the important difference. In, in Revelation 1, whose hair... Now again, it's the Son of Man, thinking about the Gospels, who Jesus identified himself as. Who is it that has white hair and 
flames like our eyes like fire. Who is it? In Revelation one. Who's being described? Jesus. Jesus. What about Daniel seven? Who's being described as hair as white as snow and like pure wool? And there's a mention of fiery flames and a little bit different description or vision. Who's being talked about there? God, okay. Ancient of days. I mean, who is the ancient of days in the Old Testament? It's Yahweh, right? It's God. It is their one God that they worship. Think about that. In Revelation of Jesus Christ, um, there's not two different people in this image. There's one. And so here we see the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. In, in the Old Testament, there was, this was an image of the Messiah was coming, and it was going to be a man who was just and righteous. In the revelation of Jesus Christ and in, in the New Testament as a whole, we learn that Jesus is not just the Messiah of Jews. He's not just the ma- Messiah of the Jewish people. He is the Savior of everything, of everyone, right? Of the cosmos, right? That's... That's what we talked about in John's Gospel. So that's a significant difference. The design pattern is the same, but it's a significant difference that in Revelation, um, it is not, um, it's not described as the Ancient of Days as, as God the Father. It is God the Son that takes on these images. Again, symbols, right? Symbols that we're seeing. All right. Not only are there design patterns that can be pulled from uh, the New Testament. Um, actually, what we're going to see just as, or the Old Testament, what we're going to see just as often is going to be um, connections to the history, right, of what's going on in the time period of when when Revelation was written. It is an epistle first. It is a letter written to certain people before it is anything else. And so the context of what was what was going on in the world of Asia Minor at that time is going to be important. Revelation 1, we hear this. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I don't know if you can see this image. This is a coin that was minted by Domitian. I told you earlier, Domitian was most likely the emperor that was ruling during the writing of the book of Revelation. This is Domitian here. Um, His son, his infant son died. And Domitian, again, remember he's the one who revived emperor worship, empire worship at his time period. So what does he do to console himself after his infant son dies? He says, he's, a, he's divine, he's a god, he's above all of us. And so he mints this coin with him on the front and his son, his baby son, sitting on the globe. Um, again, a planetary, uh, Jupiter, like all of these get Roman god names, right? Um, and so they, they, they um, understood the world as a, as, as a sphere. He's sitting on the earth over all of us. It's hard to tell, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven stars. Now, he doesn't have them holding them in his right hand, but there's seven stars. It's a symbol that this man, or this boy, who was supposed to become a Caesar, who was the son of this Caesar, was supposed to become Caesar himself, was divine, was above all of us, and he has seven stars that he's just kind of playing with as, a, as an infant. Um, and, and the writer of, John, writer of Revelation existed in the Roman Empire. The people who read Revelation before anyone else lived in the Roman Empire. They used these coins to buy things. And so when we hear that, that imagery of, of the, the one who was like a son of man has seven stars in his hand, 
you know, we, we might think about it and we might try to understand what it means. But until we find this, until this is found, we don't realize that when the people who first read this heard this, they probably pulled out their, they're like, that sounds familiar. They pulled out a coin and said, dang, that looks just, that, that sounds just like what's on my coin. Now, is it this young infant Caesar that is being described as, as playing with the stars, as holding the stars, right? No, it's Christ. What is being communicated there? And no, we do not worship infant Caesars. Don't worship any Caesars. We worship Christ. Christ is the one who has the ability to hold stars in his hand, not some infant um, would have been Caesar. Um, and so again, that's just an example, and I think we're going to see that as we get into the book of Revelation, of how images not only are being pulled from Scripture, but images of what's going on around them, the, the empire, are being pulled in. Um, and we need to understand those. It can, it can help us understand what's being communicated there when we have that. Um, and so then let's just list those things off again. A golden sash, head, his hair were white as snow, white as wool. What does white represent? Purity, right? Um, he's pure. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Um, and, and you can actually find some other images. We just don't have time to get into it this, this evening. Refined as in a furnace. Voice was like the sound of many waters. We've already heard, we already saw in the video what water typically represents this mighty, chaotic, um, but also only God control, right? Um, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword. Now, Jesus doesn't actually literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a symbol, right? And his face was like the sun shining with full force. Taking all of that together, that description, what does that communicate to us about this man, the son of man, this Christ? What does it tell us about him? What does it tell you about him? If you saw this. Powerful. Powerful. Right? Mighty. Yeah, true power. Yeah, I mean, these images of Jesus, they highlight that image of power and might. And he's present with the lampstands. Don't forget that. He's there amidst the lampstands. That's where he is. The lampstands represent the church. This mighty one is among you. Among you, in the midst of you. For John, Jesus is equivalent with God. He's the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man isn't just the Messiah of Israel. He is God himself, and he bears all authority and power. This over against a message that says that Caesar, or his son, is divine. Um, I just want to kind of close out here. Um, this quote from Mitchell Reddish, another, uh, another book that I'm, I'll be using for this study. He says, The book of Revelation offers an alternative view of reality. An alternative view of reality. It declares for modern readers, as it did for its first hearers, that in spite of appearances, God is supreme. God. The one who is the Alpha, who is the Creator, is also the Omega, the consummator of history. Um, that is what Revelation is about. It's giving an alternative vision. Um, you know, we, though we don't have like a lot of the same exact problems that the original audience had, um, we don't have the Roman Empire um, persecuting us, um, there are other destructive things in our world. Death and sickness and illness and 
Um, so many things that we can list as, as um, destructive and evil in our world. Um, the message is the same. Okay? The message is the same for us that it was for the original audience. Um, that there's an alternative vision. And it requires faithfulness, even to the point of death, which we'll hear in the next chapter. Even to the point of death, remain faithful to this way. Um, and, and I just... I'm really, I'm, again, I'm looking forward to this, this series. I, I, want us to, I want us to go um, forward with a lot of what we talked about today in mind. Um, I know I've, I've been talking a lot. I hope that there'll be, um, I plan on the lessons, the following lessons to have more engagement and offering you time to reflect. I just, I felt like it was important for me to, to tell you, to show you how I plan to go about this, um, this book. Anybody have any comments or questions? Um, thoughts that they'd like to share before we close? Huh? Good <laughs> Yes. I did. I felt like I wasn't going to get through it tonight. I'm glad we did. I actually got 10 minutes left and I usually am holding y'all too long. Well, again, um, if you if you miss a week because you're out on vacation or anything, um, we'll have the we'll have too the podcast. Yeah, too bad. We'll have the podcast and we'll um, we'll have a YouTube uh, version of it. I'm not sure how much PowerPoint we'll be having and videos we'll be having every week, but um, I will be doing the the YouTube as well as the podcast in case I've got visuals. It only seems appropriate that a book like Revelation that we have a bunch of images for us to look at. That's what the book is. Is just just this big image being painted for us. Um, so I will close us in prayer and we'll just be dismissed a little early today. That's all right. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this book that you've given us. Um, you know, Lord, it, it is a tough book. A lot of people avoid it. A lot of people, um, a lot of people obsess over it um, because there's just so much imagery. There's so much in it, Lord, that we want to know about. Um, and then there's some of us that would rather just not even, not even turn to it. Lord, may this, uh, these next few weeks, all through summer, and as long as it takes us to get through this book, uh, may it be refreshing to us. May it be um, a new perspective on something we've read before or, or an, an introduction to something we've only ever avoided in our scripture. Um, but more than anything, Lord, may it be inspired by you. Um, may, may, these, may these lessons in, in our conversations be pleasing to you. Um, would you take this time and, and take um, all that we've talked about tonight and that we will in the, in the coming weeks and use them for your glory and help us to be a better church, a better, a better Christians because of what you've said to us. We love you. We praise you. Go with us into this day. In Jesus' name, amen.